0: That's that's the first thing. I I never speak without a cup of coffee. Um, It's pathetic, I know, but it's just kind of what it is. Uh, If you would take your message outline for this morning, that will help. There are only five PowerPoint slides in this message this morning, so most of the things that I'm going to mention are in your handout, though. Um, I know some of you, and some of you I don't know. Uh, Let's go to PowerPoint slide one. Uh, This is... This was a long time ago. This was 44 years ago. Uh, My wife, Nindy, and I were married. I was 26. She was 25. And this particular picture has an unusual camera angle to it. Um, My mother-in-law made this arch with greenery and and white bows that you can see that that look like I'm wearing a white bow in my hair. I was not wearing a white bow. Um, I wish she could be here today and you could know her. She is the most amazing woman I have ever met by far. And by the way, uh, any stories you hear with her in it this morning or uh, this afternoon, I have permission to tell. All right, uh, second one, the second picture is this is uh, my family. um, My son on the left, my youngest daughter next to him, my oldest daughter on the right and her husband. We have since added two other... uh, in-laws, and three grandkids. And then uh, I think there's one more. Let's go to the next one. Yes, this is us about 10 years ago at an anniversary thing. Uh, You know, and old age has its place. You know, it just kind of, unfortunately, it keeps moving. Well, um, when we were, we got married, I was 26. And at at about age 28, uh, we were driving to a place in Fort Worth where we lived called Pizza Palace Pavilion. I think that was the name of it. And uh, Mindy was in the right seat, and I was in the driving. And we had a young couple that had just gotten married in the back seat. And we had been to Pizza Palace Pavilion probably 12 times over the years. It was a pretty pretty happening place in Fort Worth. It was a very long sort of warehouse-type building that ran parallel to a very major street. It had a huge sign across the top, huge sign on there. We'd been there a lot of times. And um, so we're driving there, and we get about a uh, mile and a half away, and we are driving up a three lanes each way kind of road. And I pull into the left-hand lane and then get into the set. There are two left-hand turn lanes. I get into the second, the far left, left-hand turn lane. I have my blinker on. It's flashing. I'm waiting for the red arrow to turn. Now, what would you imagine was my intention as I'm sitting there at the light. Yeah, I'm going to turn left. I'm going to turn left. See, it seems obvious to me. So we're sitting there waiting for the light, and as soon as the green arrow turns left, I'm in the second of the left-hand lane. As soon as it turns green, Mindy from over here sweetly says, Oh, Seth, Left here? <laughs> left here? Now, what I'm about to tell you is what went on in my mind, not what I said, okay? So it went something like this. Left here. Is it not obvious what I was getting ready to do? I mean, the blinker was blinking. The flasher was flashing. I was in the far left-hand lane to turn left, waiting for the red arrow, I mean, for the red arrow to turn green. It seemed obvious to me. And I thought, well, maybe the, maybe the angle of which she could see the dashboard, maybe she couldn't see that the flasher was flashing. So I'll give, give her the benefit of the doubt. But surely she could have heard the blinker because I heard the blinker blinking. It was blinking. And there was something. Now, this all happened in about two seconds. And everything in me wanted to go straight at that point. But there was, a, there was a car to my left that was also turning left, and I decided not to do that. But I just sort of carried my bad attitude into the left, you know, as we turned left. And then we had about a mile down another street, three lanes going to the right. Some of you relate to this story. I can tell. Three lanes going this way. Three lanes going this way. Pizza Palace Pavilion about a mile down this way. I get into the far right-hand lane. We are approaching Pizza Palace Pavilion. I turn on my right blinker, and I happen to check, and it was blinking. <laughs> the right flasher was flashing, although I, she might not have been able to see the angle. I was, I'd slowed down from about 50 miles an hour, 50, to about 5. Now, all across Pizza Palace Pavilion, there's a, there's a sign that's sort of like at SoFi Stadium, you know, up there with the, the, the across the top. Pizza Palace Pavilion in bright white lights. And above, as I was turning into, there's a huge sign, maybe like the size of Texas. It was a Pizza Palace Pavilion. Now, I'm slowing down, and at that moment, she says, oh, Seth, right here, right here. Now, I didn't say anything, but again, what went through my mind was, oh, come on now. The blinker was blinking. I heard it. Then I thought, well, maybe she couldn't have heard it because of the conversation we were having. Benefit of the doubt, okay. Well, the right flasher was flashing. I saw Well, maybe she couldn't see the angle. But certainly she would have known that I'm driving five miles an hour on a 50-mile-an-hour street. And surely she should have known that I saw the signs. Now, at that moment, I looked in the rearview mirror as I was turning, and the guy that was about 23 or four years old, a newlywed guy, had that look on his face like, oh, man, sorry, dude. You know, <laughs> I, I, I feel for you. I know what this is like. And then I looked at his wife, the newlywed wife. She was about 24, and she had that look on her face of just sort of that feminine disgust that said, yes, this is the kind of moron I'm married to. You know, that just, it's, you, he's, you wonder if he's going to get anywhere on his own. So I pulled into the parking lot. And by this time, I was a little miffed and sort of, a, you know, a little bit out of sorts. But I couldn't say anything because we were supposed to be helping the couple in the backseat with their marriage. <laughs> now, the question is, you know, what do you do with that? Well, later on, I mean, you don't say anything then, but... Later on when you get home, is that worth mentioning? Do you do, Is that a good thing to do? And some people say, oh, yes, you should, you should share everything. But, you know, if you've been married long enough to know, if you share everything, you're going to be sitting out on the couch and, and sleeping there for a while. And there are just some things that you just have to sort of process yourself and deal with yourself. You know, First Peter 4, 10, love covers a multitude of sins. Or a multitude of stupid sayings or things that that uh, somebody else says or you're thinking. Uh, so what, what do you do with that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, I've talked to uh, dozens of young couples who are getting married. And almost everybody I've ever talked to has the same assumption. Oh, Pastor Seth. The kind of love that we have, it's going to carry us far into the future. Now, they may not say that, but that's the working assumption. And when I think of that, I always think of this picture. Let's go to our next slide. I always think of, this, of the long jump at a track meet. You know, the long jump, you know, you see the, the person, the guy or the gal down here, and they're going to run down the long ramp. They hit that white stripe, and they leap high into the air as far as they can go until they land in the pit. And I think that, uh, you know, that's sort of the image I have. Oh, our love, is this going to take us so far? And I always want to say, into the pit. (laughs) Now, what's so amazing, if you've been married a while, you know, nobody's love is going to take you that far. It takes a whole lot more than just kind of the love that we feel as we're going on. now, as we, now, this is a message this morning that is related to marriage, but it's also related to, to, to us in general. If you're not married, that's fine. You, I hope you relate to this message uh, if you have parents or if you have kids or uh, if you have work and you relate to that knucklehead boss or you have people that work for you. But there's an understanding of how we are made that I want to talk about today and then how we sort of live in two different ways based on how we're made. So in your handout, there are uh, uh, two lists of personal needs and desires, and uh, I I like to think of these in sort of two categories, security and strength, or security and significance. So down the left-hand side of security, there are things like I want to feel loved, I want to feel cared for, I want to feel understood, I want to feel known, I want to feel connected. I want to feel wanted. I want to give. I want to receive. Now, generally speaking, in my opinion, opinion only, you ladies generally relate more on that side, the left-hand side of that list. That's kind of where you live the most. It's not that the other side isn't there, but the, but the left side is the one that that's kind of your, that's where, that's what you want. That's the deeper desires there. The right-hand side, in my opinion, generally relates more to us guys, although, again, it's not that the left side isn't important. But under significance, a sense of importance, value, sense of purpose, a strong sense of self, the healthy identity, uh, I want to be wanted, to give, and to receive. Now, where this comes into into being is in everyday life. For example, let's say that... (coughs) um, Ladies, you're at home. You got home from work earlier than your husband uh, and you're making dinner and you sit down and, uh, and you want to talk. You just want to share. You want to share about your day and about your feelings of the day and what happened to you and the, the joys that you had or the challenges that you or how you were hurt by somebody at work. You're just dying to share what happened. And your husband comes in for dinner and he is starving to death. And he's kind of had it with people. And he's, he's just ready to kind of get on, you know, past dinner and on to something like sports center. And there you are sort of trying to make conversation with half a person. That's about all you have there. About half of his attention is there. Now, what happens inside of you, ladies? There's something that gets tweaked there. And it's something like, then this goes on in your head, does he really care about what happened to me today? Does it really matter to him? Am I important? I just I want to be so understood, and yet he's he can't. Well, he keeps looking at the TV to see you know how the Rams or the Chargers are doing. You know, there's something that goes on that's tweaked on that list. Or let's say that you guys, and this is of course. Theor- uh, purely a theoretical illustration (laughs) let's say that you on a hot summer day decided you're going to wash your wife's car you went out you went out there and you washed your car and got it all clean and you're sweating but you're thinking got it done yes and you're thinking man I haven't waxed this car in a while I think she's going to be pretty happy to see a nice shine so you wax it and then you look inside the car and again, I have permission to share this, but your, the inside of your wife's car looks like one of those green dumpsters that you put out on Thursday morning. And, and, uh, and so it takes a while to go through. You know, well, this I can throw away, and this I can recycle, and this she might want to keep. But you know. But you get it all, and you vacuum it out. And you walk inside the house, and she's at the kitchen cleaning something in the sink. And you say to her, honey... Hey, I want you to come see something. And she says, oh, I can't right now. I've got to clean this right now. Now, what happens inside of you? You're hot and sweaty. You work for an hour. I can't do it. Oh, I, I want you to come out and see it. Well, well can I see it in a couple of minutes? Okay. And then she says, well, what did you do? I said, hey, I washed your car, waxed it, cleaned it out. And she turns to you over her shoulder and goes, oh, Thanks. Oh, thanks. Oh, thanks. Now, something is tweaked on the right-hand side of that sheet. You might call it desires. You might call it needs. Now, I want to make a distinction on this needs and desires thing. Good needs are what can be met without any person being required to meet them. If you have a need that does not require a single other person to meet that need, except God and you, that's a good need. A bad need is when I expect someone else to meet that need, they may meet them and they may not meet them. Now, in both of these little illustrations, there were bad needs that I had going to the pizza place, and I had bad needs washing her car, and she had some bad needs wanting me to have a certain kind of connectivity with her at the dinner table. Now, they're all good desires. All of those desires are good. Good desires, but they are terrible needs when somebody else is required in order to meet those needs. All right, on the inside of your handout, uh, let's the downward spiral of the human design. And, and again, this is mainly gonna relate to marriage, but it's not solely to marriage. Assumptions. My spouse is the primary need meter. Everybody I know starts, including me, starts out with that assumption. The primary needs on page one are in the hands of my wife or the hands of my husband. And that just seems so natural and like it so ought to be that way. And it could be that way. And it should be that way. That's how we think. Uh, expectations, personal needs will be met the way I want them. And that was not just that my spouse is going to meet my needs, but they're going to meet them the way I want them to be met. This gets a little more specific. Now, when we got married, uh, we were doing student ministry at TCU uh, University in Fort Worth, and we were living in a small little 600-foot... I hesitate to use the word house... But it was sort of like servants' quarters behind what used to be a house. We lived a block and a half from campus, and it was the most rundown place within miles of where of where we lived by campus. And I remember telling Mindy when we got back from honeymoon, Honey, we're we're here to do student ministry. We're so excited. We're getting ready to do this together. And I and I remember saying to her, You know, I really don't care how the house looks. That's not that's not that important. And she said, okay, that's that's great. So about two weeks later, I found myself in our house sort of becoming irritated by how the house looked. Mindy is not a a toothpaste tube roller. She's a toothpaste tube squeezer. (laughs) And whenever there's a cap upon anything in our house, that cap goes missing after the first use. There's no, there's no finding that cap anywhere with almost anything. And um, wherever she would come home and land after being gone for the day, wherever she first landed, a pile of things began to grow on that spot. Shoes, a coat, a purse, um, a backpack. And you name it, it was there. And it would stay there. Until she needed to find or to use anything in that pile again. There's just no such thing as putting something away. Now, I remember, you know, my mother was a neatnik. She was a perfectionist. And even though I had told her, don't worry about how the house looks. We're here to do I found myself inwardly just kind of going, hmm. One night at 2 in the morning, I... I was on my way to the bathroom, and I rolled my ankle in the darkness on a high heel. Now, by this time, my my mind was kind of down the road towards past nift, and I rolled my ankle, and I remember looking down and seeing the high heel, and 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 she had a closet, and there was a there was a little break between where uh, some coat hangers were. And at three in the morning, I picked up that that uh, high heel and hurled it into the closet between where those where those the, the, the hangers were separate. And um, the next day, she couldn't find that high heel. And the reason she couldn't ha- find the high heel is because the 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 uh, this st- wasn't a stiletto, but the the heel part had. Had broken through the sheetrock and it was hanging on the back of the of the closet. Now I discovered that first, and because I was not a godly man at the time, I left the shoe there and, and squeezed the hangers so that she couldn't find them. Now can you can you relate to the, to the to the this disconnect that was going on in my head? This is not important. Don't need to worry about this. And yet I was walking around our house as if I had one of these little golf pencils and a scorecard. Ah, the kitchen sink isn't it, it looks like a sponge went over it, but not much else went down the drain. Well, it looks like the, the dishes were sort of washed. Or, I can't find the shampoo anywhere. Oh, it's in the garage. <laughs> and, 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 and so I was trying to, you know, Seth, what's wrong with you? What's this disconnect? Well, about three weeks into the marriage, she said, Seth, is there something wrong? And I thought, okay, now is this the thing? Should I bring this up? Should I talk about this? And she's good at sort of pulling me out. And she pulled me out. And little by little, I I told my tale of woe, and she said, okay, Seth, I get it. I understand. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll work on this. And I remember thinking, oh, good. I'm so happy to hear that. But within about three days, it appeared to me that nothing had changed. It was still the same old, same old. And over the next week and the second week, I had my little pencil in my head and my little scorecard. And at week six, she said, "Seth, there's something wrong." And I said, "Well." And then so she she pulled it out of me. It's basically the same thing. Okay, I know I know it may not seem like it, but it's on my radar. And I'm trying to do this, and okay, great. Week nine, the same conversation. Week twelve, the same conversation. Except this time, she had tears in her eyes. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, no bueno. And to give you the short version of this conversation, she said, Seth, I don't think you're going to have peace in our marriage unless you accept me just the way I am, even if I never change. And I remember thinking, unfortunately, two thoughts, and the wrong one was first. And the first thought I thought of was, wow, she may be right. This may never change. (laughs) But the second thought that struck me was for the first time in three months that I had really hurt her. It was the first awareness of this on my part. I had really hurt her. Then I thought, three months ago, you stood up in front of family and friends, brothers and sisters, and said you would accept her no matter what. And now I felt like a complete failure. And the image that came to my mind at that moment was I was running a track race around the curve, and uh, there were some guys in front of me and I tripped over my own feet and went sprawling headfirst down into the cinder track. And I had uh, strawberries all in my arms and legs. And I looked up and all the guys are running around the track. And I'm just, and now, now I have tears in my eyes and feel like a complete moron. And so I asked her to forgive me. Now, the story here in, in sort of 12 weeks follows something that's in your handout, there's sort of a downward spiral that's slowly taking place, unbeknownst to me. There are inevitable disappointments. We never escape this in marriage or work relationships or in laws or parents or teenagers. And then it goes down. Disappointments are followed by requests. And requests are followed by please, P L E A S, to try harder. And then expectations take over in your head. Uh, and then there's pressure to do better. Pressure for the other person to do better. And, and pressure um, and, and these things, uh, expectations, are sort of like if you think of this as, this as you, this was actually me, and my little expectations running on my head uh, all the while thinking it was Mindy, are sort of like these little push pins. You put a little push pin in here. Now, you may not be able to see this, but, but water starts leaking, not out of her, but out of me. And over the course of about three months of being married, my, the feelings of romance and affection. Were slowly dwindling in me, and it took about nine. It took about three, uh, three months, about nine weeks. Uh, you know, whoever's playing guitar, I'm sorry about this. <laughs> you might want to bring some boots up when you do this. And yeah, this was me for at the first three months, first three, first three months of. Uh, well, I got stuck in there. Or uh, pressure, pressure to do better. Now, pressure to do better on somebody else and love are mutually exclusive. If you are pressuring your husband or wife to do better, that's like putting a rock on this bag and thinking that what's in that bag is going to be better for the pressure. This is not how this works. Somebody might do what, what you want them to do, but they're not going to be doing it with a good attitude. You are not going to be closer together through pressure. Uh, could somebody bring me up a, a, a napkin or a paper towel or something? I have made a complete mess of my hands here. Scorecard, who's doing more? The result, loss of romantic and marital love. When wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. You say, well, Seth, this is not wicked. What you were doing wasn't wicked. Depends on what the word wicked means. Wicked is not just those big things that we think about as, as sin. Thank you so much. Thank you, hubby. Um, Laura Schlesinger used to call this everyday evil. And that's what was going on the first three months at my house. I was engaged in everyday evil with my little pencil and my scorecard. And the result, Jesus said, is most men's love will grow cold. Now, the design is badly flawed from the beginning. All right, so on the, on the third page, God's design for marriage, and you, if you're not married, is then there are three principles that I want to mention today that are really, really vital. The first is the principle of first love. The principle of first love. Now, if you've been a Christian a while, it's a very familiar verse, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And if you've been a Christian a while, you know that verse. And you think, yes, that's important. I have, my love for Jesus needs to be first. But he's speaking in hyperbole here. He's speaking in exaggerated language and exaggerated imagery of hatred, comparison of hatred to father and mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. Now, why is that? Because whenever we make somebody else our first love, it's going to go badly. You make your spouse your first love, you're going to be on this downward spiral. Some of you ladies put your first little baby as your, as your real first love. You may not say it that way. But that's where you're drawing your primary affection, your primary sense of worth. Some of us men put our, our number one love in our career or success. You may not say that is your first love, but that's your first love. That's your real first love. Now, In our hearts, there's what the, the, uh, let's go to our next slide, is a totem pole, which, um, there we go. So long ago in the Old West and in South America, uh, Indian tribes would have these totem poles, and there's a series of faces, and the higher the face on the totem pole, whether it's a person, an ancestor, somebody currently living, or uh, an Indian god of some sort, like an idol, uh, they're ranked. So the higher the, the, the person's face on the totem pole, the higher the first, we would say, first love. And the second one is the second love. And the third one is the, the third love. Or the sense of affection, or the sense of value, or the sense of importance. Now, We are made as human beings with a, with a totem pole inside our hearts. We automatically, auto, just without even thinking about it, have faces or things that we rank as first love, second love, third love, fourth love. And what Jesus is saying is if you put anything in that first love, affection, instead of me, you're going to be on a downward spiral. This is truly a bad idea. Matthew 22, 37, and 38. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great, first and great commandment of second is is this which we'll go to in a minute but the principle is first love and it's not enough just to know this in your head but what you are going to discover like like I continue to discover 50 years after becoming a Christian that I I can make all kinds of things and all kinds of people the first love in any given moment i am an idol making machine And whenever I do that, I'm going to make a mess of things. The thing that I'm putting as first is I'm going to make a mess of that or the relationship I have there. So that's the principle of first love. The second principle is first you, then me. This is what the second commandment here he mentions. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, some people say, Oh, but I can't love somebody else, or only to the extent to which I love myself. That is not what he is saying. What he is, what he is assuming is you and I already love ourselves way too much. If we loved anybody else the way we already love ourselves, we would be doing pretty well. For example, how many of you last week made sure? that at least by the end of the week, you had enough sleep. Well, we all do that. And, and if you missed a meal, were you able to catch up on that meal? It's very likely that you had seven breakfasts last week, seven lunches, and seven dinners. It's very likely that you snacked all through the day and maybe at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock at night. In other words, without thinking about it, we just naturally meet our needs. And this is part of our fallen nature. Our fallen nature simply says, first me, then you. First me, then you. Sitting down at the dining room table with your wife or husband, and you're having a conversation, you have two people who are both saying, first me, then you. And what Jesus is trying to do in us is reverse that to where we start to become people who say, first you then me. It's a principle of first love. The second principle is first you, then me. Uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. First you, then me. Genesis 2.18, God says, Adam, I'm going to make a helper suitable for you. And Eve eventually is going to say, first you, then me. First you, then me. First principle, first love. Second principle, first you, then me. And then on the back of your handout, the third principle, the principle of one dependence. Or you might say the principle of first, one dependence. One dependence, first and only, and only. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. It's not enough just to know, I know God loves me. That's a good start. But what John here says is not enough. Am I relying on that first love? Or am I really trusting somebody else? To, to feel secure, loved, wanted, cared for, important, valued. Now, truth be known, probably every day of my life, I find myself trusting somebody else instead of God. All through the course of the day, even after 50 years of being a Christian. And so my life generally has about five or ten moments every day of some short self reflection and repentance. And it usually sounds like this. You know, God, I can tell right now I'm trusting in so-and-so, whoever it happens to be, to meet my deepest needs, and I am a fool. All I have to do is look at the cross, and the cross tells me everything I need to know, that you love me, I'm important, I matter to you, and because that's true, help me now to be a first you, then me person. It takes me about 19 or 20 seconds to do that. I have to do that at least 5 to 10 times a day. On this. So let's wrap up here. Designs regard needs and desires. God is the primary need meter. He is the primary need meter. And by needs, I mean those things on, the, on page one of this outline. He is your heart filler. Second, your spouse or your boss or your parents or your teenager uh, is a desire toucher. The difference between need and desire is huge in your heart. They can touch your heart. Design points in one of two directions. If your spouse is your primary need meter and heart filler instead of God, disappointments and expectations are inevitable. Denial can only take you so far. The clock is now ticking on both the willingness to give love and the feelings of love. There's about half an inch of water left in our little cup here. If God is the primary need meter and heart filler, expectations slowly dwindle. Slowly, slowly, slowly. You slowly become freer to reflect the love you receive from God. Slowly, slowly. There arises in you a growing desire to touch the desires of your spouse in ways that God touches the needs in your heart. The seeds of intimacy have a chance to slowly grow. Now, by way of uh, illustration, and we'll close with this little illustration. When two folks get married, there is a little bit of water in each of, their, each of their glasses. And when first me and then you takes over, you have two people vying for that little bits of water that's in the other person's glass. And you hope, and, and, uh, and expect that they should and they could and they ought to pour some water into your glass to make you feel better. And, of course, they're thinking the same thing. And when you've got first you, I mean, first me, and then you, you've got a mess on your hands. Now, the principle of first love says there is something else very different that you and I need. And it's a very different source of water. And there's a whole lot more of it than any person can give to you and me. And that's God himself. This is the principle of first love and the principle of first and only dependence. And if we will begin to live that way, then what we're going to find, we're going to find little by little more joy in being the giver of water to our spouse than the receiver of water from our spouse. You hear this? We will begin to find more joy in being the giver of water than the receiver of water. This takes a lifetime. This message is not a magic wand. This message is sort of like three big road signs that that keep saying, go that way. Keep going that way. Keep going that way. And eventually, you're going to find you slowly changing, little by little, over a long period of time to reflect Jesus. Well, Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we are together and hear this message, every one of us, including myself, we need to hear this over and over and over again. We are such stubborn, self-centered people. The principle of first love, that only when Jesus is our first love, not in theory, but in reality, are we finally on the right model. And the principle of First you, then me. Are we finally on the right model? And the principle of first and only dependence on God for our needs to be met. We are back on the right model. Father, I pray that as we are together, that you would remind us both in mercy, in 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 conviction and mercy and the wonder of grace that we are a work in progress and that this is something we will stumble on all the time every day every week every month every year until we're finally home and all we can do is is cast ourselves on the grace and wonder of god who loves people such as we are and is committed to making us this kind of people in spite of stumbling we pray this all in jesus name amen